Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and welcome to The Great America Show. Great to have you with us. We've reached, as I have said a number of times here lately, an inflection point in American history. No one can say with the utmost certainty what direction this country will take over the next several months. But there's considerable reason, I believe now, for optimism about our future. We should all take to heart what we have been witnessing in the nation's capital. I believe it's the collapse of the greatest cover-up in our nation's history. And I believe it's well underway. The congressional investigations already leaving no reasonable doubt about the rampant corruption of the Biden regime. And as the massive cover-up collapses, the Marxist Dems witch hunt against President Trump looks all the more dangerous to this republic. And yet all the more absurd because the conspirators have dramatically and absurdly overreached their powers. They have energetically abused those powers and seem to truly not understand that America is now watching their craven, corrupt acts against the law, the Constitution, President Trump, and the American people. Yesterday, Marxist Dems in the deep state piled on further their list of charges against Trump. They indicted him for the third time criminally, the second time by junkyard Marxist special counsel Jack Smith. The deep state and D.C. bureaucrats are playing with fire, the likes of which we've never seen. After eight years of political persecution of the president, the low lowlifes have finally achieved their goal. They politically persecuted, as they said they would, President Trump. The thing they promised they would do on Inauguration Day of 2017. The D.C. Marxist Dems have worked both in secrecy and sometimes in our faces to achieve their goal. But President Trump promises when he's back in office in January of 2025, he will be unrelenting against these crooks who came after him and you and me. President Trump posted on Truth yesterday afternoon, quote, In 2024, it will be our turn. Your mouth to God's ears, Mr. President. We deserve answers. We deserve retribution, and you deserve to be the 47th president. Well, today I thought we'd close out the week with the extraordinary revelations coming out of our federal government about unidentified flying objects. That's right, UFOs and alien technology. There's something going on, and we might as well take it up here on The Great America Show as we do every other story of cover-ups, whether by our government. And this story is a doozy, and it's only getting bigger. According to former U.S. Air Force Intelligence Officer David Grush, who testified last week before the House Oversight Committee, the U.S. government is in possession of UFOs and non-human bodies. There, I said it. UFOs and non-human bodies. Grush also claimed that the U.S. government has probably been aware of the non-human activity 
since the 1930s. Here's Congressman Burchett questioning David Grush before the committee hearing last week. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis- discussed publicly uh, previously, 1930s. Okay. Can you give me the names and titles of the people with direct first-hand knowledge uh, and access to some of this crash retrieval, some of these crash retrieval programs, and maybe which facilities, military bases that would the recovered material would be in? And I know a lot of Congress talked about we're going to go to Area 51, and you know, and there's nothing there anymore anyway. It's just you know, and we move like a glacier. And as soon as we announce it, I'm sure the moving vans would pull up. But please. Uh, I can't discuss that publicly, but I did provide that information both to the Intel committees and the Inspector General. And we could get that in the SCIF if we were allowed to get in a SCIF with you. Would that be probably what you would think? Sure, if you had the appropriate accesses, yeah. Uh, What special access programs cover this information, and how is it possible that they have evaded oversight for so long? Uh, I do know the names. Once again, I can't discuss that publicly and and how they've evaded oversight. I in a close setting, I could tell you the specific tradecraft use. All right. When do, when do you think those programs began and who authorized them? I do know a lot of that information, but that's something I can't discuss publicly. And there you have it. A former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, David Grosh, saying the United States has been aware of alien life since the 30s. Why has our federal government never told us? Our guest today has spent years studying and investigating the universe and theorizing of late about the probability of extraterrestrial life. He's here today to tell us all about his recent expedition to Papua New Guinea, where he made an earth-shattering discovery, and it may become even more so. Joining us today is renowned Harvard professor of astronomy and physics, Avi Loeb. Avi just arrived back from a successful two-week expedition in the South Pacific, a very successful trip where he retrieved fragments from what he says is an interstellar meteorite that may well be evidence of alien life and technology. Avi Loeb, great to have you back with us here on The Great America Show. Congratulations on your success. Great to have you here to talk about just how big a deal this really is for our exploration of extraterrestrial life. Well, thank you so much for having me. It has been uh, the most thrilling uh, couple of weeks of my scientific career. Uh, Basically, we are fortunate to be the first humans to put our hands on material from a large object, um, roughly a meter in size, that came from outside the solar system. That never happened before. And the reason we knew that this object came from outside the solar system is because Uh, On January 8th, 2014, uh, the U.S. government uh, detected the fireball from this object that collided with Earth. We see such meteors every year. Uh, Most of them are from the solar system. Uh, They are just rocks uh, floating around from uh, some debris, the Lego pieces that were used to uh, make the planets uh, that were left behind. And every now and then one of them collides with Earth. But this one was different because it was moving very fast, faster than the escape speed from the solar system, meaning that it came from outside of it. Uh, 
it's not bound to the sun like all the other rocks that we had seen before. And uh, that that was what the, the government data inf- implied based on the analysis we did back uh, in 2019 with my student, Amir Siraj. And then we submitted a paper uh, making the case that this is the first interstellar meteor that we know of that, that was recognized. And uh, my colleagues uh, did not allow the paper to be published for a few years because they argued we don't they said they don't believe the U.S. government. Uh, And then uh, what happened was that the U.S. Space Command under the Department of Defense issued a letter, a formal letter to NASA in which they said that uh, indeed this object is interstellar at the 99.999% confidence based on their data. So at that point, I decided to go out and, and search for this object because the data that the government released also implied that it was tougher than all space rocks that we had seen before. There were 272 of them that were cataloged by NASA over the past decade. And this object exploded only in the lower atmosphere of the Earth, where the density of air is very high. And given its very high velocity, it implied that it withstood a lot of stress and was tougher than even iron meteorites, uh, meteorites made of iron. So uh, the question is, what is it? And and outside the solar system, it was moving at 60 kilometers per second, which is faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. So that raised the possibility that maybe, maybe it's an artificial object, maybe it's a, a spacecraft like Voyager, you know, that we launched into interstellar space it will exit the solar system in 10,000 years. And then imagine Voyager uh, in a billion years from now colliding with another planet. And uh, it would appear as a meteor over there. And so that, that was very intriguing to consider that possibility. And that could explain why it was moving so fast, faster than 95% of the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And was also a, a possible explanation for the material strength if it's made of some alloy that uh, like uh, stainless steel or something that we produce technologically. So uh, this is not a philosophical question. Uh, we decided, I decided to lead an expedition that will search for any relics from this meteor. Um, and uh, we went to the Pacific Ocean and we found it. We found the materials. So I can go into more details uh, if you wish, but uh, the bottom line is it was a successful expedition and it was a very challenging expedition. Avi, as you might guess, uh, our audience is fascinated uh, with what you have found, uh, what it portends. Uh, and let's let's turn to how you selected the area. You narrowed the area uh, in the South Pacific uh, near uh, New Guinea, Papua, and and then went about trying to dredge. Right. So the ocean depth is about two kilometers, and uh, we needed, I mean, the government uh, coordinates were accurate to 10 kilometers. So we had a very large uh, survey area that uh, could have uh, included the uh, fireball of the meteor, and it was the size of uh, Boston or or, uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, And uh, we just had to, to figure out more precisely where it should have been within that region, and uh, what we used was uh, seismometer data from from uh, Papua New Guinea, Manus Manus Island, uh, 
And uh, there was a delay in the arrival of the blast wave, the sound wave from the explosion. And from that delay, we figured out the distance uh, of the site and uh, we pinned it very precisely uh, to an arc that uh, overlapped with the error box, the localization error box of uh, the DOD, Department of Defense. And um, then we ended up with a strip along which uh, the meteor path went. And uh, fortunately, the direction of motion of the meteor was uh, along that uh, arc that we found from the seismometer data. So, so we had a, a, a preferred region uh, that we localized, but the, the task was very challenging, as you alluded to, because uh, anything left from this meteor was at a depth of two kilometers um, down at the bottom of the ocean. And moreover, uh, the, this explosion released a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy uh, and uh, into about 500 kilograms of material. So most likely, the, at least the outer surface of this uh, object melted into tiny droplets, less than a millimeter in size, uh, the size of a, a grain of sand or, or the head of a pin. And uh, to find such uh, uh, objects, uh, that are called spheros. These are the molten droplets from the surface of the object as it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball. To find them over a region that is 10 kilometers in size sounds like um, impossible. I mean, it, it, I was really worried about this. And in fact, uh, I, I was able to get a, a group, a team of uh, highly uh, experienced professionals, uh, the best in the world, and uh, one of them coordinated the expedition, and he decided to get some bottles of champagne to the to the ship. Um, by the way, the ship name was Silver Star, so that was very fitting <laughs> for the task that we had. Uh, but he he brought champagne, and after we found it, I I asked him um, why. How did you know? I mean, uh, obviously, I would never allow us to celebrate unless we found something. So why did you bring the champagne ahead of time? It was a very difficult task. And uh, he said, uh, his name is uh, Rob McCallum. He said, uh, because I'm an optimist. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you are an optimist, you have an advantage because you are uh, attempting to accomplish something that other people do not. And uh, uh, I, I would say we were also lucky because uh, if the meteor was half its size, it was roughly uh, half a meter, at least half a meter in, in size. But if it was like a quarter of a meter in size, there wouldn't be enough um, uh, spherules, these tiny droplets for us to find uh, relative to the background. Because we used a sled uh, that is roughly a meter in size that we dragged on the ocean floor and uh, along lines that are 10 kilometers in length. And, um, you know, that's uh, over a 10 kilometer square region. And you need uh, many lines before you actually survey a significant fraction of the area. And um, we were just lucky that the meteor uh, deposited enough spherules along uh, the path that we identified. And in one of the runs, we found 10 of them, 10 of these metallic marbles. Um, it was an amazing find, I should say, because they were embedded in uh, black uh, powder, which is basically volcanic ash that 
covers the area for volcanic activity. Um, uh, and uh, w what we used is a sled that we dragged on the ocean floor that had magnets on both sides, and it collected anything magnetic, including this ash uh, from volcanic activity, which was the most visible thing. When we scraped the magnets, we found this thing. But uh, then we dried it up and used the mesh uh, to filter out the tiny particles of uh, dust from volcanic activity. And whatever we were left with, we dried up and we put it on the table and looked at it uh, with a microscope. And the amazing thing is we immediately saw these uh, metallic marbles um, that are half a millimeter in size. Um, and they looked beautiful. I mean, they had the um, uh, gold, uh, blue, and brown colors, and they stood out relative to the background. And uh, the moment I saw the first one, I hugged the person next to me that uh, was a team member that did the analysis. And because when you find an ant in the kitchen, you know that there must be many more out there if you survey the smaller part of the kitchen. And in the same way, I was confident once we found one that there will be many more. And indeed, we found about 50 of them. Uh, but I should say that yesterday I received the materials from the expedition. Uh, it was delivered by FedEx to my home. And um, I uh, brought it uh, to Harvard where we will do further analysis and we will try to figure out the composition. And uh, I'm sure that there are many more metallic marbles like that, um, more, many more than 50, probably hundreds of them, still in the materials to be found. We're talking with Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard. He's just returned from a two-week expedition to the South Pacific, where he didn't find just a needle in a haystack. He found grains of sand in a haystack, if you will. We're going to continue our conversation with Avi Loeb, who was, I suppose, the first to lift up an interstellar object uh, on our planet. We're coming right back. Stay with us. It only gets more fascinating. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with Professor Avi Loeb and whose expedition to the Pacific 
uh, was the realization of what uh, seemed like to most of us uh, Professor Loeb's dream, uh, a very uh, a dream that was unlikely to be fulfilled, it seemed to many of us uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he has done uh, exactly what he set out to do. And, I, and Professor, I've got to say to you, when you were talking about how lucky you were, and certainly luck plays a part in everything, but amongst the the luck, we should give credit uh, to certainly the the Space Command, NASA, who have the, uh, all of the sensing equipment uh, to determine uh, speed, velocity, trajectory of near-Earth objects. Uh, it, it's it's remarkable that part of the data. It's further remarkable your calibrations and calculations to determine the the uh, trajectory of the object after it enters the Earth's atmosphere, then further to uh, e extrapolate and reduce that to a path on the ocean floor. Uh, it, there's it, it's a remarkable tale of uh, intellectual achievement. I I believe as well. Your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I wrote a diary about this uh, trip, and uh, I had in it uh, uh, 35 reports, and uh, millions of people around the world followed them because uh, they were telling me that um, they never saw science being done uh, from the inside. And what they often witness are those press conferences where scientists present the final product and pretend that they were they never made a mistake. That in fact, it's uh, they as if they teach a class uh, with knowledge that is uh, well accepted. And uh, the way science is done is by iterations because it's a learning experience. We don't know what we might find. We should not have a prejudice. We should just follow the evidence. And that's what people could see through this expedition. And uh, the other thrilling thing here is that uh, potentially we have a way of addressing the most fundamental question in science, I think, is, uh, which is, are we alone? Um, uh, do we have neighbors in our cosmic neighborhood? Uh, one way to find out is by going out to your backyard and you are used to the rocks that fill up your backyard, but every now and then you might see a tennis ball thrown by a neighbor or something coming from the cosmic street that you did not anticipate that looks different than the rocks. And that's what we are doing here. We're looking at an interstellar object which could potentially be artificial uh, technological in origin. And we can use those uh, spheres, the tiny uh, spheres that we found, each of which has a size of less than a millimeter um, and, and weighs about a milligram, uh, really tiny things. It's hard to even see them in the vials that we put them in. Uh, but we can use them just like um, uh, a romantic um, uh, rose petals that lead us to our partner because they provide us with a sense of where we might find a, any big piece from this meteor. So it could be that some the core of the meteor survived and it's lying on the ocean floor. And uh, just think of, again, a Voyager colliding with another planet and ending up on the ocean floor there. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, once we go again to that site and now we know where to search, you know, if we search with a sonar and image the ocean uh, um, floor, then we might find it. Uh, there is a chance that we will find a rock that was uh, from an unusual environment, very different from the rocks in the solar system. It's, it was tougher than, than those. And 
uh, it's also possible that we might find a technological gadget. And um, I asked uh, students in my last class at Harvard of the spring semester, I asked them, uh, if we find a gadget and it has buttons, should we press a button? That's a very practical uh, down-to-earth question. And uh, half of the class said, no way. I mean, we do not want to take any risks. Um, and the other half said, of course, we would like you to press a button because it's, uh, we are very curious to figure out what will happen. Uh, and then one of the students asked me, what would I do? And I said, uh, I would take it to a laboratory to examine it first before engaging with it. So that's me as a scientist. But... Uh, it would really change the way we think about our place in the universe, the way we think about ourselves, if we find uh, that there is a partner out there, a technological civilization. What will you do now with the samples that you brought back? Uh, you described them uh, as if they sparkled in your, in your hand uh, as you found them to be so obvious within, uh, you know, as you brought them back to the surface. What do, you, what do you do with them now? Yeah, so first, when I sent pictures uh, in my essays uh, on medium.com of, of those uh, marbles, uh, my daughter immediately texted me and said that she wants one on a necklace. And I tried <laughs> to explain that the, it's the size uh, of the head of a pin. It's like less than a millimeter, uh, so we can't thread it. Uh, they're really beautiful when you look at them through a microscope, but they look like a speck of dust when you look at them in a vial. Uh, and I brought these vials to my office today. I got them uh, uh, yesterday uh, by FedEx, delivered to my home, and I brought them in um, to Harvard and met with the people that have the best equipment in the world to analyze them. And what we will do is, first of all, study the composition, what, what they are made of, um, and check if indeed the composition is different from uh, materials in the solar system. You so mentioned that includes elements. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, you mentioned earlier uh, the magnetic sled. So obviously, uh, you anticipated there would be a high concentration of iron uh, in, in order to use effectively a, a magnet, right? Yes, uh, that was the expectation because the material strength was tougher than iron meteorite. So we suspected that it should include iron. Uh, maybe some alloy of iron, uh, but um, uh, also the magnetic uh, method of selecting the particles relative to the mud, the muck at the bottom of the ocean, is most effective. Uh, the other approach, we also had a, a device called the sluicing device that is used, for example, in search for gold. Uh, so you select for particles that are denser than the background. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we found those we knew that we are on the right path. Uh, if we wouldn't have found them, we would go for the sleuthing device and try to find non-magnetic particles. Uh, but you're right. We had some intuition that uh, there should be iron there, and, and we found it. That, that was very fortunate and non-trivial, I should say, because there was a scientific paper that appeared just as we came back by experts that are used to working on uh, solar system rocks. And uh, they used the model uh, that fits the appearance of meteors uh, for solar system rocks. And they concluded that they cannot fit the data from the U.S. government uh, with their model. 
assuming that it's either stones or uh, iron meteorites, they just couldn't fit the data. So uh, arrogantly, they argued the data must be wrong because our model doesn't fit it. And, uh, you know, what I would say is you should revise your model because the U.S. government came forward, you know, the U.S. Space Command put their reputation on, on, on the line by issuing a statement that they are 99.999% confident that it is an interstellar meteor. And this paper was arguing, no, the velocity must have been much smaller by a factor of a few, and the, the, and the, and the composition cannot include iron. That was another conclusion. And by the time they published their paper, we already had the materials, the spherules. We know that they are made of iron. This paper is wrong. And so the U.S. government was right because we found those uh, spherules close to the path. Uh, that was dictated by the error box of DOD. So here is an example of how arrogance in science does not necessarily lead to the right conclusion because we now have the material, so we don't need the theoretical calculations to tell us what it's made of. Uh, We can just examine it in the lab. And that's what we are doing. So first thing is to check the composition in terms of elements, but also in terms of uh, radioisotopes. These are uh, elements that decay after some time. They are sort of like uh, time bombs. They have a lifetime, a half-life. And um, different elements have different, different isotopes have different half-lives. And we could potentially find um, such isotopes that at concentrations that are very different from the solar system materials and demonstrate that this is an interstellar uh, object, irrespective of the previous data that the government provided. Uh, But most interestingly, we can also constrain the age of the material because, you know, we would not find some isotopes if they already decayed. And so we can get an estimate of the duration of the journey. Um, that, and uh, so that will be very exciting. We're planning to, to do this analysis in the coming weeks within the month of July. And also we plan to image those spherules. We already uh, we have, uh, visited the UC Berkeley upon returning to the U.S. and uh, we did some preliminary analysis there. And the images that we obtained of some spherules looked fascinating because when you look inside of them, what you find are spheres inside of spheres, sort of like Russian dolls. Uh, and um, the, the way to understand it is that uh, there were tiny spheres uh, with a few hundred atoms in length, in size, that uh, solidified very early. And they, they became uh, solid, and then they were engulfed by uh, molten iron that was around them, and it basically carried them with it as it solidified. So you end up with spheres inside spheres inside spheres. We saw at least a few generations like that, uh, which was an amazing sight. Uh, these tiny marbles, you know, they have a lot of uh, interesting features inside of them, and we will try to analyze all of these things. Well, we're, we're talking with Professor Ave Loeb. We're going to also ask the professor about the incidents of life beyond our solar system. Uh, and we're also going to ask what uh, what else we're going to hear from the professor over the course of the next uh, few weeks as he examines closely what they found on the floor of the Pacific. We're coming right back with Professor Avi Loeb. Stay with us. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with Professor Avi Loeb. And Avi, I want to, you brought up the issue of life uh, beyond extraterrestrials. What is your personal view? Yeah, I think it's arrogant of us to believe that we are unique and special because any time in the past that we believe that we play a central role in the cosmos, we were proven wrong. We are not at the center of the universe. We arrived relatively late. The, the human species existed only for a few million years. That's one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe. If you arrive to a, a play, in this case, the cosmic play, and you are not at the center of the stage, and you arrive just at the end of the play, the play is not about you. That's a very simple conclusion. And, um, you know, most stars like the sun, they form billions of years before the sun. And, and many of them, a significant fraction, has a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So I find it very likely that there were other intelligent beings, uh, you know, billions of years ago. They may be dead by now, many of them, many of those civilizations. But it's, you know, we can check our mailbox to see if there are any packages that they sent. Uh, they don't need to be alive for us to receive those packages. You can think of those packages as uh, Amazon uh, delivery services over interstellar space, you know, and, um, you know, it takes a billion years for a package to arrive to your doorstep. But, you know, there were probably senders billions of years ago. Um, and we just need to look for those packages, for those objects in our backyard. And that's a completely new method of a search that we didn't practice before. We were looking for radio signals, which are more similar to waiting for a phone call. You need the counterpart to be active when you are waiting. But here, you know, those packages, they don't move uh, too fast. Uh, and so they are all bound by the gravity of the Milky Way galaxy. So they are still around. They keep accumulating over time, just like plastics in the ocean. Um, said, so I believe that we are likely to have a partner and that we can learn from it. And I, I discuss it in great detail in my forthcoming book called Interstellar that is coming at the end of August um, in just a month and a half from now. Professor Loeb's book title is Interstellar, appropriately enough. You mentioned the backyard. We don't want to overlook our backyards because it seems to me, at least, we're hearing and seeing so much right now about UFOs, about uh, unidentified objects of all kinds in nearly every quarter of the world. Why do you think we're hearing so much now, aside from the release by some files from the government, why do you think there's so yeah. much activity now? 
Well, uh, there may be something the government uh, knows that we don't know, but I found it uh, uh, much easier to retrieve the information from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean than to get it uh, from Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, you, you wouldn't be alone in that experience, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And so we shouldn't rely on the government to tell us what lies beyond the solar system. We should just figure it out ourselves. You know, the government can deal with national security concerns. That's a completely different matter, down to earth. And anything to do with space should be up to science. One last question for you. Should we take some considerable comfort for the fact that the Space Command, uh, that NASA, uh, and all of the sensing uh, technology that we have arrayed around the world picked up uh, this uh, interstellar traveler uh, that you just uh, went out to to re re retrieve the, the remnants. If it could pick that Definitely. up, I, I have to believe they could pick up a UFO. I, I think so. I think definitely, uh, I mean, another very encouraging fact is that, that the Department of Defense came to my defense. And the scientific community is, the, is, is, is that the side of the argument that uh, was very conservative, trying to uh, dismiss the discovery, whereas the U.S. government was the one to support it. Yeah. And during the expedition, I received a couple of emails from the Pentagon actually encouraging the scientific inquiry into this subject. So altogether, I had a very good experience with the, the U.S. government in terms of their, their being open-minded, supporting the scientific mission uh, of the Galileo project that I lead. And, um, and I should say, you know, the fact that we found these ferals next to where they located the fireball is testimony to the quality of the sensors that the government is using. It, it, it's remarkable. Did the government ask you for samples, by the way? No, uh, they never, they didn't ask me for that. Again, this is part of uh, science, what I'm doing, and it has nothing to do with national security. That's not their day job. The, the scientific inquiry on uh, interstellar space, that's beyond their jurisdiction. They just have to focus on the two-dimensional surface of this rock that we live on, the Earth. They Absolutely. don't need to think about, uh, you know, distances of thousands of light years. I also want to commend you for, as a, an astronomer and a physicist, to go into the field uh, around the, on the other side of the world to prove your, your theories and your, your, your speculation even uh, correct. Uh, and the naysayers, again, wrong as they can be. Thanks for being with us, and we congratulate you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Uh, there is a playwright uh, in Los Angeles that uh, is finishing a play about uh, my research, and it will hopefully get to Broadway. We shall see. Professor Avi Loeb, quite a story, right? Our guest, obviously brilliant, Professor of Astronomy and Physics, Avi Loeb at Harvard University. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. Our guest here Monday will be the Article 3 Project's Mike Davis. We take up the deep state's harassment and persecution of President Trump and much more. Please join us and each and every weekday be with us for The Great America Show. Follow me on Twitter and Truth Social at Lou Dobbs and on Facebook and Instagram at Lou Dobbs tonight. Be sure to check out the all-new LouDobbs.com. We hope you'll be with us here Monday. Have a great weekend. Until then, thanks, God bless you, and God bless America.